So I hope you feel well greeted. Anyways, today we uh, finish up a, a two-week series about doubt and faith. Now the message uh, that was advertised and put on Facebook was all about looking at the silence of God. But sometimes what happens when I'm working on putting a message together is it changes direction, and that happened this week. What happened is, as I thought about the series titled Doubt and Faith, two questions that I get asked a lot seem to be where I sensed I needed to put my focus. So I hope you're not disappointed with the change and that God might use these two questions that I want to wrestle with today. Oh, grade 7 to 9, I see people gathering them. You guys have a class and you're supposed to be out of here. Lucas even reminded me to do this. Yeah, I didn't. And um, anyways, let me get back to my regularly scheduled message. <coughs> anyways, I changed my mind and I want to wrestle with two questions uh, I want to look at two areas that are most troubling to people who would like to have faith, who would like to believe, but are unable to do so and find themselves wrestling and find themselves struggling and find themselves asking questions that we just don't have all the answers for. I'm going to quote some philosophers and some famous atheists, so the message might sound a bit intellectual, at least more than is normal. And I want to acknowledge that I've grabbed a lot of material from a writer by the name of John Ortberg. So number one, <clears throat> the first question that I get all the time that I'm sure you do too, or, or maybe it's a question that you're personally asking. If Christianity is true, why aren't Christians better advertisements? I think that's a big one. I mean, has it ever bothered you? I'll admit that it bugs me big time. I mean, why do Christians find it so hard to be good news to the people that are all around us? So, let me take you to a well-known atheist by the name of Sam Harris. He wrote Letter to a Christian Nation and the End of Faith. He argues that Christianity and religion actually pose the greatest threat to civilization and human survival. You've heard this over and over, right? Those who cite this objection will point to the Crusades or the Inquisition, the, the Salem witch trials and so on, or, or, or the 9-11 attack when you want to broaden the ob objection from Christianity to other religions. Guys like Harris, they talk about the, how the Bible has been used to historically uh, defend slavery or to defend the subjugation of women or the divine right of kings, you know, for leaders to do as they please. Kind of like Putin in this war with Ukraine, he claims a divine right. An atheist by the name of Steven Weinberg puts it like this. Good people do good things and bad people do bad things. But to get good people to do bad things, that takes religion. Isn't that one sweet quote? Okay, how do I respond to something like that? Well, I think the place to start is to be upfront and acknowledge that many horrible things have been done in the name of God. All of us who are Christians ought to look at these things, these episodes, these, these travities in reality. We need to face them openly and honestly and humbly and, and not get defensive. Some people, yeah, who have an historical axe to grind may exaggerate it and distort it, and they do. But all of us should be open to truth. The Apostle Paul says, judgment begins in the house of God. We have to face the atrocities done in the name of Jesus. And it just occurred to me that was Peter who said that. But anyways, 
We have to face atrocities done in the name of Jesus, acknowledge them or repent of them, and change our behavior. But I think we also must ask, did these events happen, these horrible atrocities, because of what Jesus taught? Think about it. Jesus who said, love your enemies. Jesus who said, bless those who persecute you. Jesus uh, who said, when somebody hits you, turn the other cheek. Jesus who said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They, they do not know what they do. Were things like the Crusades or the Inquisitions the result of his teachings? Or were they a contradiction of his teachings? I think also we have to ask this question. Has the human race done better in societies that seek to eliminate faith altogether? I mean, has that experiment, that idea worked better? Because you just have to recognize that the greatest bloodbaths in the history of the human race have been recorded uh, in the 20th century and in countries that sought to eliminate God, sought to get rid of worship and faith. Stalin, if you remember your history, is thought to have been responsible for 20 million deaths. Mikhail Gorbachev, who came after him, put that estimate at closer to 35 million. I read that the earlier Chinese leader, Mao Zedong, um, alone in China was responsible for something like 70 million deaths. Hitler in Nazi Germany was responsible for somewhere around 10 million deaths. Then you go back in history and you look at despots like Pol Pot in Cambodia before the present regime in Cambodia. Pol Pot led an atheistic, communistic regime where the estimate is that 20% of an entire nation was massacred by a leader who said he had no accountability to God. And friends, things like that continue to happen all throughout the world today. We don't even hear about the, the half of it in Africa, in the Middle East, in countries like Yemen, um, in the Ukraine. I think evil on an international scale or or, or or terrorism or oppression exists not because of religious faith or differences between faiths. I believe that it's only possible because of the darkness that resides in every human heart. Think about that. In fact, let's, let's just do a, a thought experiment on that. Remove all religion. I mean, no worship, no churches, no God, no faith, no belief in the afterlife. Would that remove the bulk of the darkness in the human heart? Friends, no. Not at all. To help us better understand this world that we live in, let me tell you a story of a dad. It's a, a dad who I suspect some of you will be, will be able to identify with. This dad has a five-year-old son. They're at an airport, and the kid was pretty cranky. Ever been around a cranky five-year-old? The dad was trying to cheer up his son. He was on the phone talking to his wife and he said to his son, John, here's your mom. Your, your mom wants to talk to you. <laughs> this five-year-old doesn't want to be cheered up. He doesn't want anything good. He doesn't want to have to be nice. His dad is holding out the phone and, and he takes his hand and, and uh, this kid just slaps down that phone to the ground and the glass on the phone cracks. The dad is trying to hold it together, right? And he says to his son, you should not have done that. That was not a good thing to do, slapping that phone to the ground. The son answered, hey dad, I was only just trying to grab it. Now, where does a five-year-old learn how to lie like that? I mean, have you ever asked that question? It's just staggering when you think about it. 
I think it's a little thing, I'll use a word that I used last week, it's a little thing called depravity. And it gets into kids' hearts early on, actually it's there from birth. I saw it in the hearts of my kids whom I love. It's in every human being and we see evidence of it very early on. You can do a little follow-up experiment. I mean, imagine a society with no religion, no faith, no God. Friends, it's been tried. Do you want to tell me that means that in that society, nobody's going to covet someone else's money, nobody's going to covet someone else's house or someone else's partner, that people whose skin tones are, are different suddenly are going to become, you know, just devoted, loving friends. I mean, you'd mean to tell me that just because religion is done away with greedy people will become generous and angry people will become merciful and, and bitter people will become, uh, you know, grateful. In the words of Macaulay Culkin in Home Alone, I don't think so. Or a more common objection than the one that I just gave that faith is really dangerous and violent. This is the everyday observation that Christians tend to be hypocrites. You've heard it, right? And my short response to this one is, yeah, we are. I am. I mean... I fall so far short every day of the values that, that I stand for and talk about and, and, and want to think that I believe. I do. And by the way, you do too. There is this Christian I know whose behavior was sometimes far from Christ-like. He, he went to church, loved to worship, but he, he could just be a jerk. Ever met anyone like that? Anyways, someone who was not a Christian asked, how can you call yourself a Christian and, and be so badly behaved and so mean, such a jerk, so spiteful? And his response to this non-believer got me thinking. He said, just imagine me if I were not a Christian. Now, that's not an excuse, okay? But hey, we Christians can all be jerks, mean-spirited, harsh. But over time, as we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us, as we invite Jesus to transform us, we become more like Jesus and less and less like jerks. That's God's plan if we let God work his plan in our lives. So let me ask, how are you doing? Are you allowing Jesus to make you less of a jerk? Just asking. And hey, I'll tell you who else are hypocrites. It is not just the Christians. Non-Christians. Again, this is just part of being human. Posing, hypocrisy, image management, spin. You can say that you have faith or you can say that you don't have faith. But part of what Jesus and the writers of the Bible uh, teach is that all of this is part of the human condition. We're all in this boat. We're all hypocrites. And, by the way, Jesus' promise is not, if you become a follower of mine, God's going to make your life pleasant. God will automatically get you that great job. God will give you great health. His promise is that he will chip away at the sin and the selfishness inside of you so that one day you can become good news to people who need good news. And again, by the way, Jesus' plan to change the world was not to assemble a group of great debaters who could out-argue everyone else or out-tweet everyone else. No, his plan was to create a community of people who actually build their lives on the loving presence and power of God. A, a loving presence that, that so overwhelms us that, that we become good news to the poor and 
break down barriers between Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, educated and uneducated, white and indigenous, affluent and poor, and, and form a community of generosity and oneness and inclusivity that, you know, that just becomes light to the surrounding dark world. This is still Jesus' plans, friends. This is what we get to be a part of. Okay, with the time left, let me get to a second challenging question that I hear so, so often, and it goes like this. If there is really an all-loving, all-powerful, all-good and competent God overseeing the universe, why is there so much evil and so much suffering and so much pain? Ever think about that? I mean, you know. Natural disasters like wildfires that are all around us right now, tsunamis and earthquakes, accidents like last week's horrific bus crash in Manitoba, diseases like heart attacks and cancer and Alzheimer's and MS. Again, let's go to atheist Steve Weinberg who says, the God of birds and trees would also have to be the God of birth defects and cancer. Okay, I, I, I get where he's coming up coming from, and, and let me tell you a story. A, a story of a couple, uh, um, this is a church-going family, uh, caring parents, and, and they had this uh, beautiful little girl, uh, the kind of girl who's so beautiful that, that people would just stop, you know, on the street and comment on her beauty. Uh, they had a pool in their backyard. On a summer day, it was nice outside, um, so, and the mom, it was so nice that mom set up this playpen in the backyard so that the daughter could just go and enjoy the day. The doorbell rang, and the daughter was in the playpen, so she went to answer the door. Her daughter tugged on the wall of that playpen, and the hinge that held the side up gave way. It didn't have to. God could have stopped it. God could have reached down from heaven and straightened it out and kept that playpen up, but he didn't. When the mom came outside, she saw the beautiful little body of her beloved daughter at the bottom of that pool. It was the beginning of a pain that no words could describe. She would have rather died herself uh, if she could have changed that one moment. But she could not, and she would have to live. The memory of how old her daughter would be would, would haunt her, like every birthday and every Christmas and when she would, you know, graduated from high school. That mom would live with emptiness, live with guilt and blame and, and the aloneness of all of that. Friends, this is our world. If our faith is going to mean anything, we, we have to talk about this. We have to be able to talk about this with the Steve Weinberg types. We have to think about this. Writer and philosopher Dostoevsky, who was a believer in God, wrote that the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. And friends, some of you here have known that pain. But sometimes Christians, Christians respond with bad answers. Sometimes we can be glib. Sometimes we can tell people that they brought suffering on themselves by sinning. Sometimes we tell people that they've not been delivered because they just don't have enough faith. Sometimes pastors have added to the enormous pain and suffering by pronouncing that some natural disaster uh, was caused by God's judgment due to some sin that the preacher happens to be particularly against. Why is there this kind of pain and suffering and evil in the world? Part of the answer is, I don't know. 
Now, I do find it interesting that in some religions, evil and suffering do not become, you know, the basis of an intellectual problem. Take Hinduism. In Hinduism, suffering is the result of bad karma left over from a previous life. If you're suffering in this life, you're working off bad choices that you made in a past life. In Buddhism, both suffering and joy are understood to be illusions, the result of human desire. So in Buddhism, the goal of the spiritual life is to eliminate desire so as to become immune to suffering and evil and pain. Yeah, humbly, I just got to say that these approaches to the issues of pain and suffering have never been able to make much sense to me. So here's what I believe. I do believe that God made humans with free will, and free will inevitably includes the capacity to do evil and to bring suffering to others. And it brings to our world fallenness and brokenness that, that we just see all over the place. I do believe that God looks at our world from an eternal perspective, that, that God understands that one day suffering is going to be redeemed, that all that is wrong will be made right, that, that God sees this in a way that I just don't. And, and I do believe that the message of the cross is that God has chosen to take the full weight of human suffering and evil on himself. This is what was happening when Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do believe that Jesus introduced to us a suffering God, something that the world had never thought of before. So while I don't know the full answer, I do know and believe these things. I'm also struck by the consequence when I consider the alternative thought that there is no God, that there is no eternal story that we're a part of. It leads to such a dark, depressing world. But then when I choose to believe that ultimately God is good, that a better world is coming, and that I'm part of that eternal story, that is healing and life-giving. And so now you must choose what you're going to bet your life on. And so I invite you to consider these two alternatives and their consequences. One of them, to paraphrase atheist mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell is, this is how he sees the world. You are the product of causes that have no purpose or meaning. Your origin, your growth, your hopes, fears, and loves, beliefs are the outcome of an accidental collection of atoms. No heroism or intensity of thought or feeling can preserve your life from beyond the grave. All the devotion, all the inspiration, all the labor of all the ages are destined to extinction in the coming vast death of the solar system. The whole temple of human achievement must inevitably be buried in the debris of a universe in ruins. That's what we're all headed for. Friends, does anyone want to vote for that one? Or will you choose this alternative that I think is well summarized by the Christian philosopher Dallas Willard? You, listen to this, you are uniquely designed creation of a thoroughly good an unspeakably creative God. You are made in his image with the capacity to reason, choose, love that sets you above all other life forms. God's aim in human history is the creation of an all-inclusive community of loving persons with himself included as its primary sustainer and most glorious inhabitant. 
He is even now at work to bring this about. You have been invited at great cost to God himself to be part of that radiant community. You, right there in your life, you will not only survive death, you yourself were made to bear an eternal weight of glory that you cannot now even fathom and you will one day know. You must decide which one to bet your life on. There was a meme or a, a, a cartoon a while back. It, it showed two guys going door to door introducing their religious beliefs. They were atheists doing door to door evangelism. They stand in the front of an open door and the man who opened it says, the pamphlet is blank. The answer, well, we're atheists. Friends, if there is no God, there's no story. There's nothing to write. There are no guidelines. There, there are no indicators. Nothing makes any difference. Do whatever you want to. The pamphlet is blank. But let me say this. The mere fact that atheism might be dark and depressing does not mean that it's false. If it's true, we might as well own up to it now. But we all have this sense. Think about this. We all have this sense. Not, not just that life is hard. Not just that we suffer. Well, we have this sense, not just that things are bad, but things are not the way they're supposed to be. You have that sense. Everyone has that sense. Children are not supposed to grow up with nobody caring about them, nobody worrying about their education or their health, just because they're the wrong color or they grew up in the wrong neighborhood. Women are not supposed to be abused. Dads are not supposed to die of cancer when they're 40 years old and their children are little. If the universe is just a machine, a, a giant accident, just a blind, uh, pitiless, indifferent mess, where did we get the idea that there is a way things are supposed to be? Where did that idea come from? Jesus said, we have that idea because there is a way that things are supposed to be and it is beautiful and glorious beyond imagining. The prophets of the Old Testament, they, they used to talk about this. They used to dream about this better world, and they had a word for it. The word was shalom. Uh, all things are the way that they're supposed to be. Shalom, most of you just think it means the word peace, but it means all things the way they're supposed to be, and one day they will be. Our hunger for shalom keeps driving us to God. Our running away from God is, is why, this, why it's broken. Okay. Let me wrap up with a simple picture I grabbed from John Ortberg. A, a lady went to a nail shop to have her nails manicured. As the beautician began to work, they, they began to have a good conversation about many subjects. And, and uh, when they eventually touched on God, the beautician said, I, I, I don't believe God exists. And, and why, did, uh, why do you say that, asked Cheryl, the, the lady we're talking about here. Well, you just have to go out on the street to realize God doesn't exist. And she goes on. Tell me, if God exists, would there be so many sick people? Would there be abandoned children? If God existed, there would be neither suffering nor pain. I can't imagine a loving God who could allow all these things. Cheryl thought for a moment. She didn't respond because she didn't want to start an argument. The beautician finished her job and Cheryl left the shop. Just after she left the beauty shop, Cheryl saw a woman in the street with long, stringy, dirty... Uh, Hair not groomed at all, she just looked dirty and unkempt. And Cheryl turned and entered the beauty shop again and said to the beautician, you know what? Beauticians do not exist. 
How can you say that? asked the surprised beautician. I'm here. I just worked on you. I exist. No, Cheryl exclaimed. Beauticians do not exist because if they did, there would be no people with dirty long hair appearing very unkempt like that woman outside. Oh, but beauticians do exist, she answered. The problem is people do not come to me. Exactly, Cheryl said. That's the point. Friends, God exists. What happens is people have not come to him. People have not looked for him. The prophet Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. That's why there is pain and suffering. But then in the middle of all that pain and suffering, Jesus comes and says, hey, I'm here. And if you'll let me, I'll love you. The pamphlet doesn't have to be blank. There's an eternal story and there's hope. You can be part of that story and experience the loving, healing power of hope. It's your choice. So will you join me in a moment of prayer? Take the words that I'm praying and, and just turn them into your own personal prayer. Just kind of pray this with me. It's a, a prayer where you will choose God. So pray, Jesus, I believe. Would you help me in my unbelief? Just, just acknowledge that with him right now. Jesus, I am broken. Would you come into my life and begin your rebuilding work? Would you, by a work of your spirit, transform me so that my life becomes good news to people who need good news? Jesus, in this war-torn, disease-ravaged, sin-wrecked world of ours, I hold on to the truth that you are coming back to make all that is wrong right. Even so. Come, Lord Jesus, and today I make a commitment or I renew my commitment to be so full of your loving presence and power that my home, this church, this city, this world is a better place because of what you are doing in and through me. May your kingdom come, may your will be done in my life as it is in heaven so that others will experience your loving presence and power through me. I pray all this in the eternal, loving, life-giving name of Jesus. Amen.